Hello everyone and welcome to the Mark Leverage Magic Podcast for March 2022. Thank you so much for joining me as ever. Well, I'm recording this just a few days after the Blackpool Convention. And although I don't have my own dealer stand there anymore, I do attend and spend some of the time wandering around the dealer hall. Now that I don't have my stand, of course, it gives me the freedom to do just that in a way that in years gone by, I was always trapped behind the stand deming and selling and I wasn't able to get away. But these days it's much more relaxed for me, so I'm able to walk around. And it always strikes me every year how there is such now these days a variety of magic dealers. And these really vary tremendously from the high-tech, modern mentalism guys doing some incredible things with their electronics and so on, right the way down to dealers who've been around for a very long time and who've been selling what it seems at least the same tricks for decades. And it did lead me to wonder, do we all get actually a slightly frozen in time in our lives? You know, as a magic dealer, you kind of reach a peak of popularity, perhaps a peak when your stuff is what everybody seems to want. And because it works for you, you think, well, if that worked, then here's something that's similar. So now I'll sell this. And then a year later, no, here's something that's similar. I'll sell this. And sometimes I think there are some dealers who have carried on like that, staying basically the same, selling basically the same type of product for, as I say, decades. And you think to yourself, well, shouldn't they move on a bit? Shouldn't they try and modernise? Is there any value to, I mean, society has moved on, hasn't it? Audiences have moved on. Well, the funny thing is that although the dealers may have sort of frozen themselves slightly in terms of what they sell, what you have to remember, of course, is that they have a customer base. And those customers, they have frozen in time as well in terms of the things that they're interested in, the things that they enjoy buying and using and performing. And so they still have a totally valid purpose. The people who are going to buy off the older dealers are perhaps not the same people who are going to buy off the the new wave dealers and each has his own each dealership has its has its own base if you like of people who are interested in their products and and so is the same when you're a performer i think sometimes we for instance in our lives we we get frozen in terms of our musical taste Perhaps it peaks in your, in, your, in your late teens or into your 20s. And the, the music that you liked at that age, you still like when you're in your 50s and 60s. You know, you might like more modern, some more modern stuff, but your default position is to go back to the stuff that has memories for you, but in particular when you were young. And I think as a performer, there is a sometimes a bit of a worry. I know I've certainly thought about this. I don't want to look like some old git who is, is, has sort of missed the bus home. And he really shouldn't be performing at all because he's obviously clearly past it. Whereas, and in fact, it's you may not be as modern as obviously the young people are. But again, you have your own audience because the audience has grown with you in the same way that rock groups find that their, their, their base is very perhaps young when they start and when they're young. They go on for 30 years in the music industry. The audience goes with them because they like them. So the audience ends up in their 60s and 70s as well as the musicians. 
that yes they get younger people coming perhaps as well but the bedrock of their of their database of people who are really interested in them dates back from when they were young and started too so i think for performers you have to kind of embrace the age that you are and realize that there are people out there who like what you do if you're in your 50s there will be 50 year old people who really appreciate the way you look how you dress what you say the references you make and the magic that you do same with the 60s and 70s and so on so yeah it led to all these sort of thoughts about uh, whether we all need to update and obviously nobody wants to be totally old-fashioned but on the other hand it, you do need to remember that there are other people too who perhaps are equally old-fashioned and who actually rather like being so i'd like to talk a little bit now about magic practice I think you practice more when you're young than when you're older, but nevertheless, the principles of practice are valid whatever age you are. And I think practice, you can break it down. And I've talked about this previously. That you, you can break it down into various stages. The stage is probably starting with practice in front of a mirror and ending up actually, in one sense, practicing in front of your live audiences. That's another, another stage of it. One of those stages, and I think one of the which is somewhere near the middle and one which I think is very important, is where you come away from mirror practice and you actually film yourself so that you can watch it afterwards. The trouble with mirror practice, of course, is that it only shows you one angle usually. Um, it certainly is prone, I think, because you're if you've got a difficult move and you need to look at your hands in order to execute it, you're looking in the mirror as you build up to it and then when you get to the difficult bit you tend to look down because you're trying to concentrate on doing the move and of course you've missed whether you were flashing or whether you were doing it adequately or not similarly sometimes even if you're watching it people almost instinctively blink at a vital moment and miss the fact that they didn't do the move that well so once you come away from mirror practice and you film it that a camera is unblinking and it really doesn't lie to you and it shows you exactly no matter you know whatever angle you stick the camera at it will show you quite mercilessly whether you're up to the job or not so it's actually very useful isn't it if you're serious about practice then putting up your, your camera phone or, or camcorder or whatever you're going to use and filming yourself is a, an important part of your practice regime i would suggest the only thing is, though, it's all very well filming yourself and it's all very well watching it. But are you in a place where you're prepared to accept that what that camera is showing you is reality? Because when we've worked really hard on something, when we're invested, we've invested time, energy and enthusiasm into trying to, to do something which we find perhaps technically difficult, after all this practice, to then watch it and go, oh, uh, not quite as good as I thought, are we prepared, are we mature enough to be prepared to accept the findings, if you like, of the camera? Or do we go, yeah, but the audience wouldn't know that, or, oh, that'll fly past lay people. Oh, will it? Uh, lay people are not stupid. They may not always know exactly what you're doing, but if you telegraph moves, they'll know that something was happening. And if they think something's happening, chances are they're not going to be as impressed with you as if they didn't know that what you were, that you were doing anything at all untoward. So 
part of the skill, I think, of using a camera for practice is learning properly from the results that it gives you and then responding adequately and in the right way, not sort of skimming over it. Oh, no, it's fine. It's, that was just a bad camera angle. That was unfortunate or I didn't really mean to do that or learning from that and using it as a tool that can really genuinely help you to improve. Because if you don't take the findings seriously, there's absolutely no point in filming yourself. And I think there is a temptation. I say when you're invested, you've invested time that you, you don't want to be told. It's like if a magician, a friend of yours, he watches you and you show him this brilliant trick and he goes, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You think, okay, I think this is awesome. Well, yeah, yeah, it's all right. You know, you feel very deflated. And the same thing as if you practice in front of a mirror, you then do what you think is a really good performance. And then if you sit and dispassionately watch it, only to discover that it wasn't perhaps as great as you thought, do you then have the strength and the, the, the uh, sense of keenness to go back and give it another go? Well, hopefully you do. Because then, after two or three different takes, if you like, camera takes, you'll suddenly go, now that looked good. And if you can consistently hit that standard, then you know that it's going to be absolutely fine to take it out and perform it commercially. If you're the sort of magician who enjoys trying to come up with your own ideas or variations on things that have come before, there is a, a stage in the creative process where sometimes you can sort of hit a brick wall. You've got a certain amount of knowledge. It might be a lot or it might only be a little. But there are always going to be limits to what you know. And when you're trying to solve a magical puzzle, how am I going to create this particular effect? Well, I could try this and this and this. Uh, none of those quite work. Oh, I can't think of anything else. Where, what am I going to do? It's at that point that you start to think to yourself, I, maybe I should collaborate with some other magicians, which is often a very good way to go. I mean, after all, Darren Brown and people of that standard, they, they rely on having a team of people that they can brainstorm with so that everybody puts a little bit of themselves in into the, a project that hopefully is enriched by all the different points of view. But I think there is a slight problem sometimes depending on who you actually try to collaborate with if you don't pick the right people because there are some people who would be only too keen to help you but they would have a very particular and singular view of how something should be achieved it may be a strength of theirs or it may just be something that they happen to feel very strongly about so if you go to this person you say look I'm trying to do this they are then going to impose perhaps upon what you're trying to do a very strong point of view about how you should do it. But this method or this technique might be actually at odds with who you are and the type of performer that you are. And this person, because they're, they're so invested in, in their opinion of how it should be done, may not realise that by trying to almost force you to take their opinion as the one that is correct, they may then be making you do something that it doesn't come naturally and that's not going to be a good fit for you. So this is where having several voices can be of benefit. So that's why magic clubs sometimes have evenings where they, they have some sort of a critique, don't they? Somebody will, people will bring along an act or a trick that they're working on 
they will perform it as it is up to that point and everybody will put in their opinion the trouble is then you can have too many voices you know if you've got half a dozen people all giving their advice and unfortunately the advice that they give doesn't there's no virtually no overlap between any of them they all think you should go at it go at it in a different way the collaboration that you hope would clear your mind and show you the path to go down might actually make you come away feeling even more confused than you were before you started because you've got too many options perhaps some of which you may have already discounted incidentally but others which you just you're not quite sure whether you should do them or not and so you end up being almost further back down the path than you would otherwise have been. I think the secret is that collaboration is a good thing when it's a small number, say let's say three or four people perhaps, and people who have um, not only expertise and knowledge but who understand you as a person and a performer. Because if they do then they will be able to say to you well look in your case, because of the type of performing personality that you have, wouldn't it be funny if you did it like this? Because that would be so you. And then you could use this method that would fit in with that. And you could get away with doing this, this and this. So that it's a completely different way of looking at it. It's making it more performer centric rather than just method centric. And taking into account your personality as a performer as well as a, a method that will achieve the magic trick itself. So having people around you who are positive like that and who are not absolutely uh, insistent that their view is the right one, it is just one of perhaps several. But this is how, what they would do. If they were doing it, they would do it like this is better than having people who say, no, 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 that's not how you do it. No, you've got to do it like this because this is the only way that works in for, for lay people and blah, blah, blah. Well, it may be the only way, way that works for lay people for them. Whether it is for you, of course, might be a mute, mute point. So if you do need to collaborate, be very careful who you collaborate with. But if you can get the right people around you, and I know this from my own experience, I've got a small group of people who I trust completely with everything. And, and it's proved so beneficial over the years. And I think if you can get that, then it helps you to be um, not only more creative, but to fast track you to solutions that are just right for you. When I was about 10 years of age, I lived with my mum and dad down in the southeast of Kent. And there were no magic dealers or magic shops that I was aware of anywhere near me. I'd been interested by that stage in magic for about three or four years and the only magic that I'd managed to purchase was from basically from toy shops and sometimes there would be a little rack up with a few small magic tricks and I used to buy those. And my mum and dad also managed to find me one or two magic books which they ordered through the general bookseller Smith's. But really as far as a, a dedicated magic supplier went I'd, I'd never never come across one. And then one of the books that I managed to find in a, in, a, in a general bookstore had in the back a list of magic dealers. And one of those dealers was Harry Stanley's Unique Magic Studio in London. And I got very excited at the thought of, because London was an hour and a half away from where I lived. And so I started to badger my dad to take me up to Harry Stanley's. So eventually he gave in and uh, we drove up 
and we went through the red light district in order to get to Harry Stanley's, which was um, I completely ignored because I wasn't I was more fixated on magic than anything else in those days. And eventually we, we got to the, to the door. We went up some steps and we reached a, 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 an open door at the top and we sort of pushed through and into it. And the moment we entered the store, um, a magician who I probably would know who they were now, but I didn't know who they were at the time sort of rushed over and blocked our passage into the room. And he said, can I help you? And so my dad's and, and he looked at my dad being the adult. So my dad said, oh, it's, it's not for me. It's my son. He's interested in magic. So the person said, oh, yes. And he looked at me and he said, um, did you want something in particular? And I said, well, I've got a set of multiplying billiard balls, but they're only tiny and, and I'm looking for some bigger ones. Immediately, his whole attitude changed. All oh, right, fine. Well, come in, come in. We've got a beautiful set that I can show you. And it was almost like we'd we'd um, said some sort of magic word and it had gained us admittance. What was happening here, of course, there was a, a sort of a filtering because the magic, whoever that was in the store, just didn't want necessarily... It wasn't a joke shop. This is Harry Stanley's Unique Magic Studio. This is a proper magic shop. And he didn't just want somebody wandering in off the street who had no idea about anything to do with magic. So he kind of vetted us. And then we were allowed in once I mentioned something specific that made it clear that I knew what I was talking about. You compare that to the way magic is sold today. Most um, online, most sellers are online, myself included, of course. And we have basically pretty much no idea who is logging onto our site, what their expertise is, what their interest is. And there's no way really, unless you put some sort of a password, of a magic question to let people in if they get it right. There's no real way of stopping people from coming in and looking, and if they wish, of buying stuff. Now, given that the amount of fuss that is made at times about exposure of magic, isn't it a bit hypocritical of us online retailers to make any sort of comment about this and say, oh, it's not right that magicians should give away their secrets, when in fact we do it every single day, potentially? When I sell something, obviously a lot of customers, my customers have been with me for years and I know who they are. But of course, on a regular basis, you'll get an order completely out of the blue from someone who might be on the, these days on the far side of the planet, who I have never heard of. And they may know me from my products, but I don't know them. But they can come in, they can look, they can buy. And of course, it's almost like I absolve all responsibility for protecting the secrets. This person has paid money, therefore I'm going to deliver the secret of how this works. So I think sometimes when we get a bit precious about exposing secrets, we have to remember that the worst exposers in the world, potentially, apart from the people who give stuff away for free on YouTube, who I think are in a league of their own, um, are the magic dealers. And the only thing that makes it perhaps acceptable is the fact that in order for customers to receive knowledge, they do have to show an interest by paying for it. And I guess that is the, the dividing line. Those who just want casual interest will go to YouTube and look up free stuff. Those who are genuinely interested will try to get the real stuff on the magic suppliers. But it makes you think, doesn't it, when you come to sort of magical exposure these days. 
One of the things that I rather enjoy doing in my spare time is watching some of the content from Netflix. And at any one time, I've often got several long-running series on the go or I'm watching films. And when you watch quite a bit of this stuff, you start to realise how formulaic and clichéd some of it is. And I'm going to mention three things that I've noticed here. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed these as sort of passing interest. The first thing is, have you noticed where mobile phones are everywhere? Every film and every series, everybody's clutching a mobile phone. And they're often now absolutely core to the plot of almost anything that you can think of. And at some point, whenever there's a series or something like that, where somebody's got a phone, there'll be a conversation going and the phone will ring and the person will look at the phone and will look up and say to the person sitting opposite them, I'm sorry, I need to take this and then turn around and walk away with it. And I'm thinking to myself, why do they do that? Why do they say, look at the phone and go, I have to take this? Well, of course you do. It's just wrong. Well, you're either going to answer it or you're not going to answer it. Why do you tell someone that you have to take it as if it's terribly, terribly important? I mean, probably it's your mum saying your tea's ready, you know. So that's one little cliche. They do that all the time. The other thing about mobile phone ringing is that they use it these days to create a break in tension. So if there's a very dramatic scene between two people, uh, an argument or, or an intense discussion of some sort, there'll be a slight pause. And at that precise moment, somebody, one of the characters, their mobile phone will ring and it breaks the moment and they get the phone out. I've often thought, why is it in real life? That would never happen, would it? You know, you don't get to a, a, an obvious tense moment and there's a sudden break in the conversation and then a phone rings. It never does that. You know what it's like. You're sitting in the bath. You're just getting comfortable. That's when the phone rings. You're just starting a meal. You've spent an hour and a half cooking. It's piping hot. You put it on the table that's when the phone rings, not actually in the middle of a tense conversation when there's a pause. So that's another cliche. And another thing that I can't believe, and this happens so often, you, you're going to be looking for these things now. You will see that I'm right about these things. The next thing is you get two characters, usually in an office or in a political arena of some sort, they will come into a room that's full of people and they're all working away and they'll come in and one of the characters will say, give us a room, please. And all the people immediately, without any comment or without any argument, collect up the few sheets of paper that they happen to be working on and immediately, without speaking, leave the room, leaving the two main characters to have their conversation in private. Does that really happen in real life? Do people walk into offices? Most offices these days are open plan. If you said, right, everybody, uh, give us the room, please. Then it would take about four hours to basically evacuate the entire building as people lift up laptops, disconnect monitors uh, in order to be able to continue to work and get all this stuff, all their bags and everything else to get out of the room in order to leave. It would take so long. They don't want to find themselves all standing outside in, in the street next to the people who have gone out for a smoke. It just wouldn't happen. doesn't happen like that, does it? So th these things are all sort of televisual cliches. And that led me to think, I wonder whether there are any things that we do in magic that are cliches.
I'm sure there must be. And I'd like you to think of whether you can think of it, of any and let me know. And I don't, when I say cliches, I don't mean stock verbal lines, but actually things that we do. Um, for instance, we'll do a card trick, we'll have a card selected, we go through a whole process of apparently finding the card and you go, is that your card? And they say, no. And then you say, are you sure? You know darn well it isn't. Why do you say, are you sure? They wouldn't say it wasn't if it was. So something like that. Can you think of any instances where magicians default to a particular situation or or handling of some sort that has become a cliche? So not lines, but actual things that perhaps that you do. Please let me know, because I'd be fascinated to see whether magic has as many cliches as TV and films films do. Magic as a form of entertainment for children has, of course, been around for a very long time. And in fact, as many even close up magicians will tell you, if you approach a table that's got some young children and plus adults and you introduce yourself as the magician, quite often the adults will say, oh, look, kiddies, here's the magician for you. There's almost like a, a supposition that the magic is for the young ones and not for the grown ups. So there is a danger, I think, to assume that that children's magic is really just a party entertainment. It's something that's not particularly important, only suitable for young people. But actually, I think magic for children has a really important part to play for magic in general, because children of, let's say, five, six, seven years of age are, of course, very impressionable. They're surrounded by a world that is constantly bombarding them with ideas, with images, with things to do, with amazing facts. And magic is all part of that. And for some children, and I was one of them, and I'm sure perhaps most of you listening were too, there was a point in my childhood when I was totally transfixed by the thought of magic when I saw a magician at my birthday party. I can remember it fairly clearly. I don't remember the tricks that he did, but I remember him very clearly. Uh, he was a, what seemed to me like an extremely old man with a great bushy beard, and he did miracles. And I was absolutely amazed by it. And I desperately, immediately wanted to do similar things. I told my mum and dad, I said, I want to be a magician like him. And, and so that then started for me, as I'm sure it has... For, as I say, for many of you, a, a, a train of circumstances that, um, that led me eventually to turning pro in magic and to being where I am today. Without that magic for children, that probably would never have happened, or it might not have done. Because I think when you are young, that's when you have the most enthusiasm. That's when you often start a lot of other activities as well, whether you start playing certain sports, whether you start taking music lessons, well, magic's all in with this. It's all part of the hobby culture. And we all start to get used to training up young people to do certain things. And of course, a lot fall by the wayside, as a lot of people who start magic don't always keep it up, of course. But if, without that initial enthusiasm, without that initial almost naivety of youth, and that enthusiasm to go hell for leather for something, I'm sure a lot of people would never get involved in magic at all. 
So let's not belittle children's entertainers. They might be actually causing uh, enough people to be fascinated by magic through their shows that in the future they will, be, will become the people who join the magic clubs, who create the latest miracles, who write magic books, sell magic stuff. They will become the magicians of the future. And magicians of the future who, as I say, we might never have had had it not been for the, the humble children's entertainer doing his stuff at a children's party. Well, that's pretty much it for the March podcast. Hope you've enjoyed all the topics I've covered this time. Just to say that if you have enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more, if you go to my website and go to the podcast page, you'll find lots of them to listen to. They're a little bit addictive. That's the only thing I would warn you about them. So get yourself a, a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or something to get you through two or three of them. But uh, they are hopefully of interest, as is also hopefully my chatter blog. I write a monthly blog. If you've not come across that before, that one goes right back to September 1992. And I've written one of those every single month without missing a single month in all that time. And you can get access to all of those. They're only a short read each time. Um, and some of them are almost like a historical note of things I was writing about at the time that were important. They're, they're very, very interesting, I think. So if you like that, the sort of things I talk about, then do read some of the blogs because I think you'll find those interesting too. So have a good month and I shall look forward to being back with you here on the podcast in April. Bye for now.